Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. We're going to be in Philippians. We're in chapter 2 this morning. We're going to read the first five verses, starting in verse 1. Philippians 2, if you would turn with me, it will also be on the screen. Starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. You may be seated. Uh, Jonathan mentioned that we were away last week. You might have been away as well. Um, the we that he's talking about is myself, two other elders, and two of our trustees. For some reason or another that I have yet to figure out, we did a 266-mile bike ride from Simpsonville. Yeah. That's good. Um, yeah, from Simpsonville to Charleston. Um, and, and there were reasons for that. I see Gray and Lindsay, newlyweds. I haven't got to see y'all yet. Could give them some congrats on getting married. Love you guys. Um, yeah, so there were reasons to do it. Um, one is we wanted to challenge and stretch ourselves. The other is that my, some of you don't know this, my predecessor here at Resurrection Church, his name is Ernest Barr. His wife, Bet- Betty, is, is battling Alzheimer's and they've moved to North Carolina to be close to family. So he has some help with her. Uh, but this ride was to raise money for Alzheimer's research. I think total we raised a little over a million dollars between myself and the other 400, 500 riders. Um, But we did this over three days in the middle of the summer. It's incredibly wise of us. Um, This is what we did. And and a lot of people have been asking, first of all, thank you, those of you that gave and those of you that have supported us through comments on Facebook and text and just cheering us on last week. Many have asked, how, how was the ride? Well, it was hard. And it was good. It was hard and it was good. It was hard because it was long and it was hot and it hurt. But it was also good. It was good because, you know, several reasons. We, we stretched ourselves beyond perceived limits, at, at least... I did. Um, I can't really speak for the others, but it, uh, it, it, it stretched us, right? Um, pain has a way of accentuating joy. And, and, and it was such a joy every day that we came to that day's finish line and to see our wives there holding these signs cheering us on. It's like it, it, the pain accentuates the joy. You know that, right? But, but here was, I think, what ultimately made it so good is that in all the hard and all the hot and in the length and in, in, in the little joys, the one big joy was that we got to do it together. Myself, two other elders, two trustees, our wives, we did this thing together. There's something about being together with people of one mind, like-minded, going through similar struggles and letting those pains accentuate shared joys. Something really sweet about that, right? Like, I, I think that's one of the sweetest things about this life. Here's where chapter one of Philippians ended, okay? One of the statements Paul made. Verse, chapter one, verse 29 Paul says, under inspiration of the Spirit, okay, he's not making this up, for it has been granted 
to you or given to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe. How many of you are thankful for faith? I mean, it's just absolutely brilliant of God, a God who we can bring nothing of worth from ourselves to him. And the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if we can bring nothing of worth to him, it's, it's just so amazing that God would give us the very thing that's required to please him. Faith is a gift from him. So it's been granted to you, it's been given to you that you would not only believe, but that you would what? Suffer. We don't like that, do we? Two gifts from God that Paul highlights at the end of chapter one. Faith and suffering. Why? Why would Paul mention that here? And why would God give us both? Well, I don't want to oversimplify it, but pain has a way of accentuating our greatest joys. And could it be that suffering is strategic on God's part? Maybe that messes with your theology a little bit. Some people just sort of live at the realm of, well, the world's broken and so we suffer randomly. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually tells us, and it's good news if you can get past that initial, mm, you mean God is sovereign over suffering? Yeah. And here's what the Bible says. He doesn't waste one millisecond of it. But it's all working together for good. Paul says at the end of chapter one, this was the instruction, really the first instruction we got to in chapter one. Andy talked about this last week. He says, only let your manner of life or the way that you live be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And here's the first way he started to unpack that for us, that a, a life that's worthy of the gospel, if a Christian's living a kind of life that accentuates the glories of Christ, we need to understand it's been granted to us to not only believe, but to also suffer. And here's what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. Into chapter one, fearless unity founded on the gospel of Christ. Fearless unity. That sounds amazing. And here's what Paul said about it. When it comes to opponents, those who oppose us, oppose the faith, presumably outsiders, unbelievers, when you have Christians fearless unity, it's a sign of two things. It's a sign of their destruction and it's a sign of your salvation. I, I was telling Andy about this last week. Um, before he taught, I, I, I happened across this YouTube video. It, it was a, an MMA fight. Are y'all familiar with MMA, mixed martial arts? Um, some of you are like, oh, no, you couldn't care less about that. It was an interesting video because there were two guys and they were getting announced at, before they fought. And one of them looked like the Hulk. You know, he's one of those guys, his traps are so big, you can't see his neck. You know what I'm talking about? Just muscle-bound, huge, and he had this look on his face like he was ready to eat nails. He looked so mad, so angry, like a, like a caged tiger with red meat being dangled in front of him. He just looked like he was ready to tear the, not only the guy apart he's about to fight, but the whole ring. And then the camera pans, and there's this other guy. And he's big, mind you, but he's a bit of a dad bod. Okay, you know what I mean by dad bod? <laughs> kind of similar to what, uh, what I look like now. It's just dad bod, right? Not really all that much muscle. He's big, but not that much muscle. And they're calling his name, and he's not gritting his teeth, flexing his muscles. He's just like, a little, little shoulder shrug. And I, looked at, I watched that, and I thought, dad bod is about to whoop hulks. Sure enough, in 30 seconds, that thing was over. Dad bod absolutely destroyed him. <laughs> but that quiet confidence, it just exuded what? You're about to get your tail whipped, and he's a better fighter than you. Paul says fearless unity in the face of opposition. 
How, how many of you would say we're, we're starting in the Bible Belt to face some opposition? But fearless unity is a sign of your salvation and of their destruction. And I think Paul intends us in a very righteous and sanctified way to relish that. That's how chapter one ends. But dealing with opposition is not Paul's primary emphasis in this letter. He mentions it at the end of chapter one, but that's not his primary focus. His primary focus, at least from a relational context, is how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. Now, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, somebody drug you to church, we're so glad that you're here. We're going to talk about how we as Christians relate to one another this morning. We're going to look at what Paul says about that because that is at least one of, if not the primary focus in this letter. Paul is concerned about how Christians relate to one another. And here's what I can tell you. That is a huge, huge deal. I've mentioned this before in this kind of context. Some of you have probably read The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. The Screwtape Letters is a fictional story that C.S. Lewis wrote. And it's about the life of a Christian from a demon's perspective. Screwtape is a demon and he's mentoring his nephew Wormwood, who's also a demon. And Wormwood has been assigned a human. They call him the patient. And Wormwood's job is to make sure to do whatever it takes that the patient doesn't convert to Christianity. That's his job. And Wormwood, uh, Screwtape is mentoring Wormwood in this task. Well, sure enough, the patient converts to Christianity and Wormwood is depressed. He's sad. I failed. But Screwtape comes along and he says, Wormwood, not all hope is lost here, bud. And here's a quote. Screwtape says to Wormwood, there's no need to despair Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp, which is a reference to the church. He said, they are now back with us. One of our greatest allies, it's a demon's perspective, at present is the church itself. When he gets to his pew and looks around him and sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided, provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore somehow be ridiculous. Work hard then, Wormwood, on the disappointment or the anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. It's not something we talk a whole lot about publicly, but Res Church is a place where Jesus heals wounds in his people from the church. And a lot of those amens are from people that are sitting here right now that have been wounded by other Christians. Some of you are here and you came here because you were hurt. And, and here's what I can tell you. I don't fully understand it. I don't know why Jesus chose Res Church for this. I really don't. But for some reason known only to him, this is a place where hurting people that have been hurt by the church come to heal. And sometimes, this is the sad part for me, sometimes Jesus heals them and moves them, which I hate. <laughs> Hate's a strong word, but it's, it's part of what he does here. How Christians relate to one another is a huge, huge deal. And that's Paul's primary emphasis, I think, in this letter. So let's pick up chapter 2, verse 1 again. And let's see where Paul's going with this now as he shifts from talking about facing opponents, outsiders, to how we relate to one another. Verse 1, chapter 2. So, everybody say so. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Make me happy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one Mind. We could replace the word so with what word? 
Therefore, in other words, Paul is building on everything he has said in chapter one, namely what? Confidence in the work that God has begun in us. That's verse six. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's talked about Christ exalting joy in any and all circumstances, including life or death. Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm not sure which is better. Actually, I do know which is better. To depart with Christ is better. Paul's like happy about whatever happens in his life or in the Philippians' life or in your life, as long as Christ is exalted. That was in chapter one. And then he ended with talking about fearless unity founded on confidence in the gospel. Those are his main themes in chapter one. And he says, so therefore, and then he inserts an if clause. And he doesn't have to do that, by the way. He could skip all of that and just go right to the command. So therefore, based on everything I've just said, be unified. But that's not what he does. He builds to that command with an if clause. And you know what if clauses are. You use them all the time. They are ways in which we emphasize something that is obviously true or obviously present. It's like when you call a friend from whom you need a favor at dinner time, and it goes something like this. Hey, if you're not in the middle of something, which obviously you are, it's dinner time, will you do a favor for me? The if clause assumes two things that are obviously present. You are in the middle of something, but I, I know you to be a person who's going to help me regardless. You get the idea? So here's Paul's if clause. It has four emphases, four things that Paul says are obviously present. And it's on that basis then that we should be unified as believers. Let's take those four one at a time. Number one, if there is any encouragement in Christ, what's the implication? There is. Back to the ride. Can y'all handle a couple more ride stories? Oh, you're going to get them anyway. <laughs> Day three, it's 101 miles. It's the flattest day. In other words, we don't have as many hills. But when you don't have uphills, you also don't have, which means you got to stay on the pedals the whole time. 101 miles. We're averaging 21, 22 miles an hour. It's hot. And I'm dying. As, as Zeke likes to say, I was on the rivet. I was like, if, if this goes one-tenth of a mile faster, this group that I'm riding with, I am going to pass away. <laughs> and, in that, and, and I just so wanted it to be over. But on the ride, I don't know exactly why. Probably it was the Lord prompted me. I'm riding in this group and I just start to quote in my mind to myself, 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven by, for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And in this you rejoice, even though now for a little while, 101 miles, <laughs> you suffer so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I just started quoting. I probably missed a word here and there, but I just started quoting 1 Peter Chapter one, and I felt this surge. I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating and I'm not trying to compare that ride to the afflictions that are probably present in this room. But I felt this surge of energy. And, and I looked at Jonathan when we pulled into a rest stop and, and he was like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm not sure. <laughs> I was like, how are you doing? He's like, I'm here. And I said, I've just been quoting 1 Peter chapter 1. And he grinned so big. He's like, yeah, I've been praying and talking to the Lord. And it was like we felt this surge of energy. And it made me think of Colossians chapter 1 verse 29. 
where Paul says, for this I toil to present everyone mature in Christ, laboring with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. You know what's absolutely present, and you know this, I don't have to convince you of this, is that Christ is present in our affliction, and he's encouraging us. Not just cheering us on like, come on, you can do it, but he's working energy in us. Aid, comfort, strength. He's doing that, and you know what we get to do? We get to share that with each other. And so before Paul gets to the command, be unified, he just says, hey, if there's any encouragement in Christ to which the church ought to go, yes, there's absolutely encouragement in Christ. We feel it. We experience it all the time. So Paul says, if that's true, here's the second one. If there is any comfort from love. You know that word love. It's agape. How many of you heard the word agape before? Raise your hand. Yeah. It's the God kind of love. Divine love. And you know what the word means? It means to prefer. Christians, have you ever thought about that in all of the things that God has made, think about the glory of planet earth. Some of you travel, you've seen things. Think about just the glory of planet earth and planet earth is not even a speck of dust in the splendor of the universe. The universe that is continuing to expand. Think about the magnitude of the universe that God has made that he flung into place with a flick of his finger and said, here's a little taste of what I'm like. Think about the glories of the heavenly realm, the angels. And in all of that that he's made, here's, he prefers you. He loves you. Do you taste comfort from that? Do you taste comfort in that What manner of this, what manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God and yet that is what we are? Doesn't that just put salve on your soul no matter what affliction you're going through right now? Is there any comfort from love? If there is, like this is why Paul wrote this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. I don't think it's wrong to think of an imaginary parenthesis there that says, how does God comfort us in our affliction? With his love. With his divine preference over us in all the things that he's made. It's amazing. He comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We haven't even got to unity yet. But you feel it coming, don't you? If there is any encouragement in Christ, yeah, well, yeah, there is, Paul. If there's any comfort from love, Well, yeah, there's that too, but he's not done. Number three, if there is any participation in the spirit, and that word is, I'm not trying to give you a Greek lesson, but these are probably two of my favorite Greek words, agape and koinonia. It means fellowship. If there's any fellowship in The Spirit. You know, Paul is not shallow when he thinks about his friendships. We can be sometimes. You know, it's sad to me that in the church world today, in this part of the world, our lives are so busy and so fragmented that 
many times, not all the time, but many times, the relationships within the body of Christ and the people that we gather with for worship on the Lord's day, our relationships with them are really nothing more than the people we do church with and say hey to on Sunday. One of the reasons why we chose to do one service in the month of July and to have prayer beforehand and some fellowship afterwards, which we're going to kind of hit the gas pedal on next week, is because we want to prayerfully promote and encourage your relationships here to go deeper. We can't make that happen. We can't programatize that. What we can do is create spaces and teach what the Bible says about Christian friendship. About, you know, gone are the days, for the most part, where we refer to each other as brother and sister so-and-so. Brother Bradley, brother, sister Barbara, brother Brian, right? Y'all remember that? How many of y'all experienced that in church? There's something right about that. Because we are the family of God. And I don't think Christ wants us to think shallow about our friendships. And the Bible certainly doesn't call us to shallow friendships. And I'm not just talking about people that you hang out with all the time. I'm just, I'm talking about a depth of spirit-saturated, Christ-exalting connection and relationship that goes deeper than, hey, how you doing? I'm good. Could we have the kind of community where when we're in affliction, when we're in, we're in the struggle, we're in the pain, I need you to pray for me. And we'd actually do it. You know, flip back with me to chapter 1, verse 3. How does Paul think about his friendships? Under inspiration of the Spirit, again, mind you, let me just read this to you. I don't think it's on the screen, but just follow along in your Bible. He's writing to the Philippians. And he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because, not just because I'm praying that you'll be safe and healthy and, and, and have enough money and your job will be secure. No, he's, he's praying why? Because of their partnership with him in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. These are not people that he had spent an exorbitant amount of time with in person. And yet he holds them in his heart. For you are all partakers of, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And we talked about this. Paul's not just blowing smoke there. This is the same apostle Paul who would say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul sees his love for the Philippians as Actually, the affection of Christ Jesus in him for them. And he's not just like, it's not just token for him. He leans into that. He prays about that. He focuses on that in his relationships. And so Paul says, if there's any fellowship, participation in the spirit, coupled with encouragement from Christ coupled with comfort from love. We still hadn't got to unity yet. Here's number four. He adds, if there is any affection and sympathy. I kind of think three and four are connected. Participation in the spirit, I think has a close connection with affection and sympathy. The word affection there, it, it literally means tenderness from your bowels. That's a gift. You can write that down. <laughs> In other words, from the affection of Christ, I think we would pull that from chapter one, right? The affection of Christ in us for each other, it comes from the deepest part of our being. 
And it's coupled with sympathy or mercy for each other. Deep affection coupled with sympathy and mercy in our fellowship in the spirit. So Paul says, if there's any, if there is that, all of that, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy to which we have to go, yep, that's all there. We may not lean into it as often or as much as we could or should, but we know it's there, don't we, church? So if that's true, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's just an over-the-top, lavish way for Paul to say, be unified in all of that. Focus on that. Ask the Holy Spirit, I think, Paul would agree with this, to help you be increasingly aware of the fact that Christ is working encouragement in us. There is comfort in all our afflictions from God's love for us. There is participation in the spirit and there is affection, deep affection and mercy that we get to share with each other. We get to be of one mind. And Paul says, here's the incentive, complete my joy. Make me happy. So we're unified so that we can put a big old grin on Paul's face. We know Paul's not that shallow. We have to ask, what is the basis of Paul's joy? What is the foundation? If Paul's, Paul's going to make a statement like that, we've got, he's got to be able to back that up with something more than just give me a grin. He's already told us, chapter 1, verse 18. What is the seat of Paul's joy? Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Rejoicing is overflowing joy. What's Paul's joy? Christ exalted. Christ magnified, Christ proclaimed in all things. And so Paul says, you're not just going to make me happy, although you are, when you're unified, when you recognize the work that God is doing among you, and you focus on that, you have one mind about that, you're not just going to make me happy, you're going to glorify Christ, and in that, I have overflowing joy. Christ is glorified and therefore Paul has overflowing joy. So you got it? God's doing this work and that forms the basis of our unity, right? We get to lean into the things God is doing and therefore be unified and focused on that. Here's the next question. What does it look like? Next verse. What does it look like when we do this? Verse three, do nothing, (laughs) do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Nothing out of rivalry, selfish ambition. Do nothing out of conceit, empty pride, you know, I'm not a selfish person most of the time. I don't don't let my pride get the best of me most of the time. But Paul says, do nothing. Does that hit anybody else between the eyes besides me? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride. That's the negative. Here's the positive. But in humility, count others more significant or here's literally the word, superior to you. Does that make you want to squirm a little bit? Like, 
But if you track with Paul, it makes so much sense. If God is doing this, right? You know what humility is? It's the opposite of entitlement. When we do things out of selfish ambition or out of empty pride, what we're doing is we're operating with other people on this basis. You owe me. You, I deserve. You owe me. It's all about me. And that is our, that is like the, I don't know, that is, that is probably the essence of our carnal fallen human nature. Me, right? So how do we get past me to a Christ-exalting, gospel-soaked focus on others? Well, if you stop and think about it, you, are, you, you probably already taste it. If there's any encouragement in Christ, oh yeah, there's that. If there's any comfort from love, well, yeah, there's that. If there's any fellowship in the spirit, well, yeah, there's that. And if there's any affection and sympathy or mercy, well, yeah, there's that. It almost just sort of falls into, why wouldn't you count others more superior than yourself? If God has done this for you, what business do you have being worried about what you're entitled to? You have grace. You have unmerited favor. You're God's people. And he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. Like this is who God is. This is what he does. He gives more grace. His mercy, somebody prayed this this morning in our prayer time. His mercy is brand new this morning. His provision is sure. His peace passes understanding, right? His love never fails. In our prayer time, I read from Psalm 40, which declares God is the everlasting God. I love that. He never wears out. I wear out. He never gets tired, right? I'm a few miles into a bike ride and I'm like, when's this gonna be over? God never wears out. He never gets tired. Even youths grow weary and faint. But they that wait on the Lord will find new strength. Like, if that's true, why would I not, in humility, count you as more superior than me? Because he has called me his own. You tracking? What would that look like? What if I actually did that? What if you did that? What if we did that? What would it look like? Verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The word interest there is filler from our English translators. It's not there in the Greek. It's, it's literally in the Greek. Let each of you look not only to his own, but also to others. In other words, that includes everything. Here's what Paul does not say. He does not say, don't ever consider your own financial affairs, your own property, your own family, your own health, your own reputation, your own education, your own success, or your own happiness. He does not say, give no attention to that. He says, just don't only focus on that. And Don't just think about that. Don't just have desires about that. Don't just strategize about that. Don't just work towards that, but also, or first, or more importantly, consider the financial affairs, property, health, success, education, well-being of others. And in this context, we're not talking about, not saying that the needs of unbelievers and outsiders aren't important, But in this context, he's talking here. In the body of Christ, don't just think about your own stuff. Think first. Think more 
about the interests of others. In humility. Why? Because not only does nobody owe you anything. Here's the reality. You don't need anything. Ultimately. I have a need right now. I'm not going to go in detail. A, a practical thing that I'm, I'm having to struggle not to let consume my mind. Because I don't like unchecked boxes. You, you know what I'm saying? Anybody else like that? Like, I, I want to get it done. I need to move on, right? When I've, when I've checked a box and moved on and Mary brings it back up, I'm like, you're, you're opening doors. I've closed. She's not in here. Don't tell her I said that. <laughs> She's in the nursery. But the truth is, I don't, I don't need. You know, Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. And after that, that's all they can do. Fear him who has the power to throw you into hell. Guess what? The one who has the power to throw us into hell has called us his children. He's given us the righteousness of Christ, unmerited favor, all sufficient merit has been applied to us. Therefore, I can deprioritize, not throw away, but I can deprioritize my interests and all that that encompasses for the sake of yours. And it could look, it could be as simple as, and I am stepping on my own toes. I'm tired and I'm watching TV because I've worked hard and I want to relax. And one of my children says, will you play with me? And you know what I get to do? I get to deprioritize my own pleasure in relaxation in order to, I don't really get in the floor with them anymore because they're too big. But to give attention to my children. It could be that simple. That we could look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. It's, it's kind of Paul's way of saying the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 22. Love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds exhilarating and also daunting. Like, I want it. I want it. Do you want it? Like, you, 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 you read this and, and you follow the logic that Paul gives, and you hear the call be unified. Count others more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. And there's something in me and there's something in you in the deep, deep parts of us that goes, yes, I want that. And I'm scared to death of it because I know me. I know me. I know what my tendencies are. I know what my weaknesses are. But then Paul gives what I think might be one of the most amazing verses that accentuates the manifold wisdom of God in all of sacred scripture. And I know that's a big statement to make. But here's what he says, verse 5. Have this mind. What does that mean? It means focus here. Same kind of language he uses in Colossians 3. Set your mind. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Same kind of thing. Have this mind. What mind? A mind that is filled with the encouragement in Christ that is here. A mind that is filled with the comfort 
that we all feel from God's love, a mind that is filled with the fact that there is participation, fellowship in the spirit, coupled with affection and sympathy, because God, who began a good work in us, will be faithful to complete it, that that is true, and we can be filled with that, unified in that. Look not only to our own interests, but in humility, Count others more significant than ourselves. Have that mind. Focus right there. Which is yours in Christ Jesus? What does that tell you? It tells you this mind is already in you. It's already there. It's why when we read it and we see Paul's words, we go, yes, But then there's that part of us that goes, "Ah, can I really live that way? And I think that just accentuates the wisdom of God because we say this all the time here at Res. Maturity in Christ is not a growth in independence. It's a growth in dependence. For those of you that are new, we talk about this. We raise our children. We rear them to become independent from us. They need to brush their own teeth. They need to be able to go to the bathroom by themselves. They need to be able to feed themselves. They need to eventually need to be able to pay for themselves. My 17-year-old is hearing that more and more. But in our relationship with Christ, with God our Father, it's the exact opposite. We, We grow up and we get more dependent. And how sweet is that? That God never says to us, you need to figure this out. I'm done helping you. No. No, he's like, abide. So have this mind. Your your effort matters. There's a cooperation with the spirit working in us. Have this mind. Focus there. Turn your attention here. When when you're tempted, and here's what's going to happen. Here's what does happen. We know this. We're going to leave here in just a minute. We're going to scatter, and we're going to step into a culture that is driving us toward isolation and individualistic thinking. My truth, me, we can go all day on that stuff. But we're called to fearless unity. We're called to be together called to be unified in the work that God is doing in us. And so we're going to have to cooperate with the Lord in this, have this mind, focus there, but know this, take comfort, church. This mind is yours in Christ. The fact that you want it is evidence of God's work in you. The fact that you feel daunted by it is evidence that God is never going to bring us to a place where we don't need him. He's always taking us deeper independence. And what a, glorious, what a glorious reality that is for the believers. I'll say these last two things. We not only need to focus there, we need to pray about this. One of the big themes in chapter one was Paul's emphasis on prayer. And, and I, I think it's great that we pray for each other when we're sick. We pray for each other when we have financial needs, relational needs, whatever. We need to pray for this kind of unity. It needs, we need to make our prayer with joy always, continually, for each other that we would lean into the encouragement in Christ, the comfort from love, the fellowship in the spirit, the affection and sympathy that forms the basis for our unity. Amen? Amen. And last thing, we need to look to Jesus. This is where we're going next week. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. 
It's 12.15. Y'all want to just keep going? Like, I mean, I'll... oh. Let's pray. Lord, I want this. We want this. It's, it's exhilarating and it's daunting. But we pause now and we pray. Help us. Aim at this. The mind that you've given us, help us focus there. And I, and I pray that a fearless unity would be forged in this church. And, and I'm sure there are other churches that are represented here to this morning. I pray that same fearless unity would be forged and that we would be a church that relates to one another in Christ-exalting ways that your name would be proclaimed. I know that, Lord, when people come to this church that maybe aren't believers, they probably sense something in the worship and song. They probably sense something in the emphasis on the word. They probably sense something's going on with these people when we pray. But I pray that in this church, there would not only be a tangible taste of your glory in our singing, in our teaching, and in our praying, but also in our fellowship and our unity. That you would make yourself known through that. When we consider others more significant than ourselves, when we put the interest of others ahead of our own, that it would not just be a charitable act to be lauded, but it would be actually a proclamation of your glory. And that in that, like Paul, we would rejoice. There would be overflowing joy that this is what we get to do. This is the kind of people we get to be because of what you have done in us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z-Faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.